If you enjoy listening to clinical conversations, why not become a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh? Our membership provides you with access to the RCPE educational portal, the live evening medical updates, and you have options to view the symposia both in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, please go to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website. So hello and welcome to this episode of Clinical Conversations brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Trainees and Members Committee. My name is Kat Ralston and I'm a member of the TNMC as well as a Medical Education Fellow and Geriatric Medicine Registrar in Edinburgh. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Claire Bostock to give us a fresh look at the geriatric giants. Claire is a consultant geriatrician at NHS Grampian and is interested in acute frailty, polypharmacy, falls and quality improvement. It's great to have you on the podcast today, Claire. Thanks so much, Kat, and thank you for asking me. Very welcome. So I think it would be nice just to start with what are we talking about when we say geriatric giants? So the geriatric giants were first described, I think, in 1975 by Professor Isaacs. And they all start with the letter I. So we have immobility, instability, so falls, intellectual impairment, or I guess what we think about nowadays would be delirium, incontinence. And then added to that has been iatrogenic disease, I guess, reflecting sort of polypharmacy and the harms of hospital. And I think these geriatric giants are really important because often an older person with frailty doesn't present in a classical fashion. So the diagnosis could be anything, but someone has presented with being unable to walk or they have presented with delirium. And I think then our job is really to try and work out what the underlying problems are so we can treat that and make someone better. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really nice description. And you've mentioned frailty there. And these geriatric giants have also been called frailty syndromes. So there's, of course, a link to frailty. It might be useful just to maybe define frailty for the listeners if they might not be aware of that and also think about how these two things are linked. Sure. So I think there's lots of different definitions of frailty. The thing I find most helpful is to think that a stressor or an insult to the person causes a loss in function. To me, that's the key thing. So it's that loss of, I guess, homeostasis, but it's that they have a functional change when they're exposed to a stressor. And I think that stressor in frailty typically produces one of these frailty syndromes or a decompensated frailty syndrome or a geriatric giant, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. Important to think about that vulnerability to stressors because I think anyone can have a change in function if the stressor is big enough. So if I was in intensive care and was very unwell, I would have a functional change with that. But actually with people with frailty, their vulnerability to stressors is much more and therefore something that we could think of quite simple as a change in medication can cause a significant change in function. So I think that's a useful way to think about it as well. And we talked a bit about the fact that people with frailty might present differently to someone else with one of these geriatric giants or frailty syndromes. And I'm wondering about how that affects making a diagnosis and how important that is in these patients. Yeah, I think that's really important because it's so easy. I think when we're busy in the hospital, especially this time of year when everything's under pressure, just to sort of assume that an older person has something like a UTI when actually that isn't the diagnosis and often think, oh goodness, there's someone who's come in with a fall. 
Whereas actually, we really need to use our diagnostic skills, I think our detective skills, to work out, well, what's really going on? Who is this person in front of me? What are they usually like? And what has changed so that they've come into hospital? So I think we really need to be really open-minded about gathering as much information as we can, particularly collateral information. So I think one of the most powerful tools that we have is actually the telephone with consent where possible if we can pick up the phone and speak to an ex of kin, a carer, care home staff and find out what's been going on and what this person's really like. To me, that's one of the biggest opportunities that we have. Yeah, I like that thought of having to be a detective. And, you know, we work in really busy times and that can feel challenging, but that can be the difference between someone having a good outcome and a very bad outcome. If we have the cognitive bias to assume everything is a UTI and not think about, well, what else could it be and what else might be going on, that can make a big difference to that patient. So I think it is important. And also a false economy in terms of bed days and admission rates if we're not thinking outside the box with these patients. I wondered if you've got any cases about sort of that importance of that proper diagnosis that you might want to share? Yeah, I mean, I think what is really important is that often we're dealing with simple and reversible things. We just need to identify them. So something like urinary retention, as you mentioned earlier, and medication change. Often it's not something, you know, the diagnosis might not be something particularly exciting, but it has a major impact upon the person. But sometimes there is something more unusual going on. So I met a lady recently who'd presented with falls. Her legs were feeling weak and her legs would just stop working and she would end up on the floor. But she'd also had some speech and swallow difficulties actually for a number of months. And it was through that sort of detective work and particularly team working. So working with speech and language therapy, their professional assessment, working with the whole team and then thinking, actually, is there something else going on? Getting neurology involved. And actually, this lady had a first diagnosis of motor neurone disease. Now, I'm not suggesting that we think that everyone that's presented with a fall has a new presentation of a neurodegenerative condition because we need to think of horses rather than zebras. But for 100 people that you see that are presented with a fall, a proportion of them will have, you know, something maybe unfortunate for them, but something quite exciting going on, some unusual diagnosis or a problem that isn't a trip. There's, there's something else going on. And I think it's our job to look for that. I've seen other people present with falls where actually the diagnosis has been a pulmonary embolism or a stroke. So unless we use our clinical skills, we're not going to find out what the problem is and we won't be able to make the person better. Yeah, really important message there. And I'll always remember I was in UFY1 and I saw a lady on the ward who'd had a fall And I wasn't quite sure what to do. So I thought, I'll just do an ECG because it's something to do. And actually that lady had had an ST elevation MI and had had no other symptoms. So I think that just sort of underlines the importance of just thinking about what else could this be. So we've talked a bit about frailty, a bit about the original geriatric giants and about the importance of making a diagnosis. But there has been a bit of a change into considering the modern geriatric giants in recent years. So can you tell us a bit about what they look like? So in, I think, about 2017, mainly in North America, people came up with the five M's, the geriatric five M's, which I like to think of as the modern geriatric giants. And I really like these M's because I don't find them so negative. I think the Isaacs model, we're talking about deficits. We're talking about what people 
don't have so immobility and the instability whereas the modern geriatric giants i think it enables us to take maybe a bit more of a positive approach and the thing i particularly like about them is first one which is a double m is matters most so you're thinking about what really matters to that person. These five M's are matters most, mind, so I guess encompassing delirium and other mind issues, mobility, medications, and multi-complexity. find this quite a helpful modern day way to sort of pin concepts on. And kind of give us, a, I guess, a broad overview of what we do as geriatricians, which can seem quite complicated and difficult to explain from an outsider. And we can count them on one hand, which I always think of as a good thing. So shall we go through them in turn then? So let's start with your favourite, which is matters most. I think in geriatric medicine, we really try to think about person-centred care. I think we're pretty much ahead of the game in person-centred care in geriatric medicine and sort of embodying realistic medicine. And for me, when I'm seeing someone, I would often ask what their goals are for this hospital stay or what they want to achieve, what matters to them. And I think if we don't know that, it's very hard for us to tailor things to that individual. I often meet people who didn't want to be in hospital in the first place and perhaps their condition could have been managed at home. So I think what matters to the individual is massively important. We need to ask that question. I think we're not very good actually at asking that question either at the point of initial assessment or on our ward rounds. Yeah, and I think it's amazing how much people will just go along with what you say unless you explicitly ask, especially the sort of older generation. There's definitely been times when people have been having ad nauseum treatment and then if you turn around and ask them what they want, it's not what they want and you end up going down a totally different path but they may not have volunteered that information unless you're explicit about it because of a lot of the kind of paternalistic approach of medicine in the past, so... Yeah, I think we're very bad in medicine at setting the plan and telling someone what the plan is without, as you say, involving them creating their plan. Yeah, so giving that opportunity to really explore what's important to that person. Yeah. Yeah, I like that one too. That's a good one. Okay, so what about the second one? That's mind. So I think delirium has to be the most important thing in this category. I mean, delirium is hugely common in the hospital. And as you mentioned earlier, that vulnerability, the people we look after typically have a more vulnerable brain and it doesn't take much to precipitate delirium. I think it's really, really important that we use the term delirium. You know, when you look through notes, you see all different terms used, but we really must use the term delirium. And I think there's some brilliant resources on the Think Delirium guides. And also it's an opportunity then to not only identify delirium, but then we need to think about, well, what's the underlying cause? how can we best reverse and manage the delirium and to explain the diagnosis to the people we're looking after and to their families as well so that they understand what's going on. I think it can be very, very frightening, especially when associated with hallucinations, not recognising family members maybe in a sudden change. People can be very worried that is this dementia, what's happened here? And I think we really do need to explain delirium, the fluctuations, the progression, and that we would look to find the underlying cause and treat it and make it better yeah absolutely and i really agree with that i think you see so many different terms for delirium in the notes so actually just calling it delirium is really important and what are the other things that are in mind that we need to think about i mentioned dementia we do need to think about dementia i'm often looking after people who are living with a diagnosis of dementia and often that 
might mean that they're actually not able to express what matters most to them and also in the context of delirium. So I guess that links in with finding about someone's baseline. What's their cognitive function usually like? Has there been a change? And finding if someone isn't able to communicate their wishes, making sure we're speaking to a proxy decision maker, legally appointed or otherwise if there isn't one, and just really trying to find out what's important to that person and what they're usually like. Yeah. Absolutely. And I suppose capacity probably comes into that a bit as well, just leading on from that. I think definitely, because when we think about comprehensive geriatric assessment, we're thinking about how to help someone and discussing treatments and treatment options. I need to know whether that person can make informed decisions about treatments that I might be offering or investigations. Often we might need to support someone to make those complex decisions. Absolutely. And should we just touch on mood as well as a potential influencer here? Yeah, definitely. And I think mood often could overlap with all of these. And I think it's really, really difficult often when you see someone in hospital, they're out of their own surroundings. Are they depressed? Do they have hypoactive delirium? Is there something else going on? I think it can be really difficult to actually disentangle what's going on. I often see people whose mood is low reactive to their circumstance because their function is reduced compared to usual they're away from home they may be away from their pet dog or their family all these things can have an impact upon mood as well as obviously having potentially an underlying biological depression so again i think it comes down to gathering as much information as we can i don't think we can go too far wrong if we assume that there's delirium if we're not sure because all the treatments for delirium are really actually parts of good fundamental care so things like making sure someone's not in pain that they've got their glasses and their hearing aids that they're well hydrated and their bowels are working and we've checked their medicines I mean all these things are good fundamental care that we should be doing for everyone and you're not going to cause any harm by doing these things yeah I like that as a thought I haven't really thought about it like that before but you can't go wrong if you're treating as if it's delirium grand so I think that probably covers minds so shall we move on to mobility so I guess there's two aspects of mobility. One would be someone presenting with a fall and one would be someone presenting sort of with immobility or maybe even hospital-acquired immobility. For me, for falls, I think it's really important to consider was it a fall, was it syncope, and to really delve into what's going on. And also, I guess, to think about what are the things that we can reverse. There's lots of things that we can't reverse in terms of risk factors for falls. So if someone has Parkinson's disease, for example, we can't take away that diagnosis. I think the key things we can reverse in terms of falls risk are delirium and bad medicines, because we know that people with delirium are four and a half times more likely to fall. And if we treat delirium, we're going to reduce the risk of falls. Typically, I'm looking after people with probably both delirium and who have presented with a fall. And if we try and make both things better. Yeah, falls, I think it comes down to history, examination, and then some tailored potential investigations depending on your history and examination. And if we can get a collateral history, often we don't have a witness account, but getting a collateral history can be really key. With mobility, I guess, knowing someone's baseline, how they usually mobilize, and then really thinking about, well, why was it they could walk yesterday and they can't walk today? What has changed? There must be something going on and we need to look for that. And I think in hospital, we've got a 
particular battle, I guess, we have to get people up. And when we're seeing people on trolley or on the bed, the longer they're there, the greatest risk to them of losing muscle and losing mobility in hospital. So we do really need to get people up and going as early as we can. And that's where having a multidisciplinary team is so valuable. Yep, that sort of PJ paralysis really has a lot of impact on people, you know, immobility in hospital and also postural hypotension and things. So I think that's really important to highlight. I wanted to say, yeah, about the importance of getting people up dressed and moving. And whilst I mentioned the MDT, as doctors, we have a responsibility for getting people up. So there's no point in just waiting for the physio tomorrow. When we see people, we should be, especially if someone's had a fall, ideally, we should be watching them walk. And if someone's in the bed, we should be offering them up to the chair and seeing how they transfer and trying to get people up. Yeah. And I think that actually really helps with your assessment as well. And thinking about discharge planning, if you can actually see what they're like on their feet instead of, like you say, waiting for the physio as long as it's safe to do so. Yeah. I think one of the most useful things I've seen sometimes is on a ward round if someone needs a bathroom. And if I've perhaps seen someone use the bathroom, that's given me so much information in terms of planning their discharge or next steps. Yeah. So they can watch the toilet. They can independently use the toilet. They can get back. Grand. And I just wanted to talk about some of the terminology around falls because I see the words mechanical fall all the time in the notes and it drives me a bit mad. And I think people don't understand sometimes why it drives geriatricians a little bit mad. And I think part of it is around just thinking about why is that person had a fall because I'm not having a mechanical fall. So there's a reason why people are falling. And if we don't think about it and investigate it, we're going to miss things. So I think it's really important just to, again, coming back to making that diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. I don't like the term either. I think what people are trying to say is it was a fall rather than syncope or a seizure or something else. But then call it what it is. If it's a fall and there was a trip, I trip, but then I don't fall. Why has the trip led to a fall? And if if it is syncope, call it syncope. I think the other thing is when sometimes we see people who have been found on the floor how did they get there? Was it a fall or was it something else? So we can't assume that if someone's been on the floor, it's because they've fallen. They might have collapsed because of overwhelming sepsis, for example. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's really important. Okay. So I think that's probably sort of covered the mobility aspect of it. So let's move on to medications. Really important area, I think. Yeah. So I think, as I said earlier, medicines is something that I think we've got the power to change because if we stop a bad drug, we can make someone better often. I think it's really important. We need to find out what medicine someone's actually taking, what they're prescribed and what they're taking might be two different things. And then we need a systematic approach to those medicines to know what the indication is for a particular medicine. And is that indication still relevant? Is the medicine still of benefit? I think here the Scottish polypharmacy work is brilliant and We can put a link at the bottom to the Scottish Polypharmacy website and app because for me, that's something I would often refer to. And I think it's a really good approach to reviewing medicines because I think sometimes it can feel a bit overwhelming when someone's admitted on 20 drugs and you think, where do I start? I like to think that there isn't a right or wrong answer because it depends on the person. It depends on what's important to them. And some people are happy to make lots of changes at once. Some people would rather make one change at a time. Obviously, if someone presents with an acute kidney injury, there's some medicines you're going to just have to stop straight away. But sometimes it might be a bit more gradual. And I think you just do need to tailor it to the person and how they want to play things. 
Yeah, absolutely. So it's not just about stopping things. I think that's sort of what people think that we do. It's just carefully considering, you know, is that drug still important? Is it doing benefit? Has there been a change in priority? So, you know, you might want to tightly control diabetes or blood pressure 20 years ago, but actually when they're, you know, 90 and have moderate frailty, that tight control might no longer be relevant for that person or important to them. And are there sort of any common culprits, problem drugs that if you see them, you think, oh, red flags? Yeah, I mean, we don't like anticholinergic drugs. They're particular bad drugs for people living with frailty because of the side effects of dry mouth, constipation, increased risk of falls, increased risk of cognitive impairment in both the short term and the long term. There's lots of medicines. There's some classic anticholinergics that we'd all know, like oxybutynin. And then there's other medicines that may have some anticholinergic effect that we wouldn't classically think of anticholinergic. And again, there's scoring systems that you can look through to help with that. I think the other drugs that we have caution about, particularly at sedative drugs, particularly like your Z drugs, like your Zopiclones and things, and often analgesics may have sedative effects as well. But I think you'd mentioned earlier about we've got a reputation, I think, in geriatrics of stopping drugs. And I always think we've got that reputation of coming out with our pen and crossing everything off. But I think we do need to remember about starting medicines. So if someone's sore, they need analgesia and we are passionate about constipation and treating that with laxatives. And so there are medicines that we need to remember to start. It's not all about stopping drugs. I think that's really important. Yeah, it's such a good point. And I think the other thing is anticoagulation in AF needs to be sort of a positive decision that's made with the patient and something that can reduce the risk of a lot of disability and might be really important to that person. So not assuming that person had as one fall, let's stop the apixaban. Thinking about that quite carefully. Grand. And let's cover the last one. So that's multi-complexity. Yep. So for me, multi-complexity is more than comorbidity. And it's very easy to accumulate comorbidities, diabetes, hypertension, COPD. And actually, less than a fifth of people with multimorbidity have frailty. And lots of people with frailty don't necessarily have multimorbidity. When we're trying to identify who would benefit most from our care, it's not necessarily someone living with five conditions because they may be living with five very well-controlled conditions and they may not have frailty. However, we do definitely have a role in balancing multiple conditions. But for me, that multi-complexity is a bit more than multimorbidity. I think it's often one of the things we have to do more than anything is balance risk. So looking at the risks of someone being in hospital, we're often faced with families, sometimes even other healthcare professionals who think it's far too risky for this person to be at home when actually hospital might be the riskiest, probably is the riskiest place for them to be. So I think a lot of the multi-complexity we do is actually managing risk, looking at complex social situations and dynamics, looking at vulnerability, not from the sort of homeostatic vulnerability, but thinking about if people are vulnerable through other reasons, maybe through dynamics or financially vulnerable. So I think the multi-complexity is a lot more, as I say, than managing lots of conditions. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really useful way to think about it. And important to highlight that actually multimorbidity does not equal frailty, which I think sometimes gets lumped into the same box. Okay, so we've talked about the five M's, which seems like a really practical, helpful way to think about the approach to a patient who's living with frailty. And I'm wondering, you know, a lot of our listeners might be working at the front door in any or in acute medical units. What should our approach be when we're seeing these types of patients that are coming in? 
So it's everyone working at the front door will be looking after older people with frailty and seeing people present. And I think about 40% of the admissions to hospital are older people and taking up a large proportion of hospital bed days. So we all need the skills to look after older people with frailty. We can't just leave it to geriatric medicine. It's part of all of our skills. I think when we're seeing someone at the front door, it's really useful to understand how that person lives, what their background is, what their functional baseline is. And as I mentioned earlier, that's often getting collateral information and finding out what's been going on. I think often the clinical frailty scale is used as a screening tool to try and identify the people at greatest need of early comprehensive geriatric assessment and early intervention by specialist teams because obviously the quicker we get in as that multidisciplinary approach and the quicker we get someone up and moving and thinking about home then the less likely they are to come to harm but I think the clinical frailty scale there's certain caveats and I think there's sometimes a sort of lack of understanding you see the pictures and you see the person on a trolley or on the bed and it's very easy to see someone in a hospital gown on a trolley who looks frail But actually, we need to drill down and the clinical frailty scale does have some key explanatory notes to it. And it has to be part of a clinical assessment. So with other information to inform your assessment. And it's how the person looked two weeks ago, how they were functioning two weeks ago. So it's not how they are now looking unwell in a gown. And on those notes, I really like the fact it says that the clinical frailty scale, it should be sensed, described and measured and that we need to verify the information. So the person we're looking after might give us a good account of their daily function, but we might want some corroborative information as well. And we really want to sort of drill down into changes in function. So maybe what's been happening beyond two weeks, what's been happening over the last six months, maybe what's been happening over the last year, and just get a real feel for change and what's been going on there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's important when you're thinking about that assessment for frailty. And we've already talked about the importance of making a diagnosis and really having a detective mindset when thinking about seeing these patients at the front door who may present atypically to your you know, 40-year-old who has pneumonia. And can we talk a little bit about the management of these patients when we're seeing them in acute assessment? So I think your management has to start from your basics of history examination, investigation. And I guess if someone's presented with a frailty syndrome, why is that? What's going on? In our department, we've actually used quite a few sort of checklists and things. And one of my colleagues, Dr. Kazlaker, developed a post-take ward round checklist. So we're thinking routinely about what's the calcium level, you know, as a possible cause of delirium that's been missed. Are someone's bowels working? Have we checked the medicines? You mentioned the ECG earlier. Have we done an ECG? Have we seen the ECG? So having that systematic approach to dotting the I's and crossing the T's, what's caused the change in this individual? And I think then that early team assessment, I'm really fortunate to work with some brilliant therapy colleagues at the front door and to really get in early to have a team assessment of that person's function. And can we get them home? Yeah. I think the can we get them home question is really important and I think that's probably changed for me since when I was an FI1, FI2 as you become more senior because I think the first thing I think when I see someone is can we get them home or what do we need to do to get this person home and that's part of your clerking, part of your first assessment because I think sometimes it can feel like we have 
an admission bias for older people. You know, person comes in to A&E and we just think, oh, we'll just admit them to medicine. And it's so easy to do that. And it's actually really hard work sometimes to get someone home. But you've talked a little bit about the harms of being in hospital for this group. And I guess the importance of trying to do what matters to them and to think about home. I don't know if you've got more to add on that kind of thing. It just feels important to me. I think your point about admission bias is absolutely right because often these people can look stereotypically frail and especially, you know, they're not dressed often. So we're not always seeing people at their best. And I think even within healthcare professionals who maybe aren't used to looking after people with the highest levels of frailty, it's hard then to imagine that person in their living room. And I think that's what our teams do so well is first thing in the morning, getting people up dressed looking like human beings rather than patients. But you're absolutely right about identifying the barriers to discharge. And we try to think more and more about what are the criteria for discharge? So what does this person need to be doing to be functional at home? How far do they need to walk? Do they need to be able to heat up their lunch? What do they need to be doing? And can they demonstrate that they're doing that now? Or do we know based on our overall assessment that they've got the skills to carry out their daily activities at home? Because the risks of being in hospital are absolutely huge in terms of falls, hospital-acquired delirium, infection, pressure ulcers, loss of function. I mean, particularly in the hospital system, up to 50% will lose function between admission and discharge. So if we can do anything to maintain someone's function, that's typically going to be getting them home. Yeah, absolutely. And I often think that, you know, a lot of these people that we're seeing will be in their last one, two, three years of life. So it's really important that as much of that time is spent as possible being where they want to be doing what's important to them, which is generally not being stuck in hospital for these people. And I think it's also useful to know about your local options to try and get people home. And that'll be different everywhere. I don't know what you've got, Claire, to help you try and get patients home. Yeah, definitely. We're very fortunate in Aberdeen City to have a hospital at home team who can support with discharge from hospital and like an active recovery model and also can provide alternatives to admission as well for people in the community. So I think hospital at home is a great way for someone to be receiving hospital level care in their own home, reduced risk of delirium and increased ability to maintain function at home. So we're really fortunate to have that service. Absolutely. I think it's a great service and hopefully that'll be expanding to more places as time goes on. I know in Scotland, certainly there's been a massive expansion over the last few years. Okay, so I think we've had a really good chat around the Geriatric Giants, the new five M's and a way to think about the approach to patients living with frailty, thinking about the importance of doing a detective assessment of patients who are presenting at the front door and making a management plan that's collaborative and is focused on doing what matters to that person and is in their best interests. I wondered whether you've got any sort of final summing up thoughts or important messages you want anyone who's listening to take away into their practice. Thanks very much. I think one thing I'd like to highlight is that we all need to be advocates for older people with frailty. We all need to give people the care and respect that they deserve and not let any ageist attitudes creep in. I think it's really difficult when the system is under extreme pressure. It's often easy to blame some of those pressures on older people, but it's not their fault. People become unwell and it's our bread and butter for all of us will be looking after 
older people. So we need to be, I believe, passionate about helping them and standing up for them and letting them have access to the resources, the care, the specialty opinions that they require and not necessarily doing heroics and lots of invasive investigations, but at least allowing someone to have discussions about what's important to them and what treatments may be of benefit to them rather than just assuming because they're old that they don't warrant access to certain investigations or treatment that would be of benefit really important point. I think people can just be put off by age sometimes as a number and that we really need to be thinking about the reversibility of what is happening to that person and if that person has a reversible problem and that's what they would like we should be doing our best to treat that problem. So yeah I think that's a really nice point to end on. Thanks so much Claire that's been a really interesting chat and I hope the listeners have enjoyed it and learned something about frailty at the front door. Thanks Kat.